0: Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, Thank you for tuning in for our sermon here at Victory Baptist Church. If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. James, would you go to the next slide for me? Um, We're currently working our way through the book of Hebrews. There we go. All right, we're currently working our way through the book of Hebrews. Um, and the, the whole idea here is that Jesus is greater. And throughout this, this book, the author contrasts Jesus with several Old Testament figures and, and, and icons and, and ideas um, because the author was writing this letter to a group of first century Jewish Christians. And so they had this Old Testament background and this, this Jewish faith, but they have now accepted Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they've placed their faith in him for their salvation. So, what the author is doing is, is taking this new faith that they have and showing how Jesus uh, is greater than all of these Old Testament symbols and, and people, and how all of these Old Testament references point towards Jesus. Throughout this series, we've hit a few different uh, mini series where it's um, specific people or, or things where Jesus is contrasted with, but what we're doing right now is the, the author has kind of hit a little bit of a roadblock. Um, he sees where the audience, they might be a little bit... Um, they, they, they lack some understanding that's necessary before moving forward, um, but the author has... Um, He's decided that he's going to keep moving forward anyway. And last week we saw there was a a warning against immaturity. And this was a a theological laziness where the audience had, they they had the ability to understand, but they hadn't put in the work yet to really work through their faith and their mind and and all the implications of it. And so he says, here are some things that you maybe need to go back and study up on, but I'm going to keep going anyway. Uh, And this morning, it's kind of a, a continuation of that thought. And so this morning, it's a warning against apostasy. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 12. And the main idea of these verses is to show the evidence of your salvation. To show the evidence of your salvation. And that's that, uh, we're going to break it down into three sections. There's uh, the impossible renewal. And then a section about being confident in salvation. And then a section that I'm calling inheriting the promise. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have given us your word so that we can know you, know more about you, and know how to live our lives. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you will show us where we need to grow to be more like you. Show us how we can reflect your glory to those around us and show us your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we'll go ahead and get right into this text. Like I said, we're gonna start in Hebrews chapter 6, verse four. It says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance, Those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. Now, there are a few different interpretations of this text, all with some pretty compelling arguments. However, I do think that if we spend a few minutes with this and compare it with the rest of Scripture, We can come to a pretty clear understanding of what the author is talking about. He says, Those who were once enlightened. All right, what he means is salvation. If that wasn't clear enough, he goes on to explain it even more with these phrases tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word, and tasted the powers of the coming age. It's clear that he's talking about those people who are saved or were saved. It's clear that he's talking about salvation. If these phrases don't explain somebody who is saved, then I don't know what does. This is not someone who has a false sense of salvation, but someone who is actually saved. And so talking about those people, it says it is impossible to renew those people who were once enlightened and who have fallen away. So he's talking about apostasy. Apostasy is the abandonment of faith, or put another way, when a Christian loses their salvation. These former Christians could be called apostate Christians. What he's saying is that if someone were saved, then somehow lost their salvation, there is no way to get it back. Now, this makes sense because it is Jesus' sacrifice that saves us. See, the central belief in Christianity is that we are saved through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, as God, came and lived here on this earth as man. He was crucified for our sin uh, because as the sinless God-man, only his death could atone for our sin. What the author is saying is that if that sacrifice was not good enough, then nothing else could be. Because Jesus won't be crucified again. An apostate Christian cannot be saved again. What the author is saying, that's what he's saying when he says, um, to their contempt, they're re-crucifying the Son of God. Their re-salvation is impossible because re-crucifixion is not an option. And then the author goes on to offer an analogy. Uh, Picking up in verse seven. There we go. It says, for the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those For whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end, will be burned. See, the author uses a farming metaphor to make his point clear. When the rain falls on ground, it can yield one of two products useful vegetation or thorns and thistles. See, that ground that produces useful vegetation, um, it receives a blessing from God. This is referring to those who hear the word of God and grow. They produce fruit, they make disciples, and show the effects of repentance. This is because they have received salvation. Then there is the ground that produces worthless thorns and thistles. That ground is cursed, and it will be burned. This is referring to those who, upon hearing the word of God, reject it, and simply continue living according to the flesh and our sinful desires. Because they have not received salvation. This metaphor is very similar to Jesus' parable of the soils found in Matthew 13, where some seed is thrown on the path, some on rocky soil, some on thorns, and some on good soil. Um, and I do think it's important for us to keep that, meta, uh, that parable in our mind when we're looking, working through this. But the focus of this series is the author's Old Testament references of which there are many, many verses that relate to this metaphor, but here are the three that I think most closely relate. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 5. This is Isaiah prophesying, speaking for God. So he says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I yielded or why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now, I will tell you what I am about to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. There we go. I will make it a wasteland, and it will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Another one would be Jeremiah 2. Uh, verses 21 and 22. He says, I planted you a choice vine from the very best seed. How then could you turn into a degenerate, foreign vine? Even if you wash with lye and use a great amount of bleach, the stain of your iniquity is still in front of me. This is the Lord's declaration. And finally, we can't forget Ezekiel chapter 15. It's all of chapter 15, but it's not a long chapter. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine? That branch among the trees of the forest compared to any other wood. Can wood be taken from it to make something useful? Or can anyone make a peg from it to hang things on? In fact, it is put to the fire as fuel. The fire devours both of its end and the middle is charred. How can it be useful for anything? Even when it was whole, it could not be made into a useful object. How much less can it be? How much... Less can it ever be made into anything useful when the fire has devoured it and it is, and it is charred. Come on. Oh. I think my battery just died in this. Right. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire as fuel. So I will give up the residents of Jerusalem. You can go to the next slide. I will turn against them. They have escaped from the fire but it will still consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I turn against them. I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully. This is the declaration of the Lord God. See, in each of these passages, the nation of Israel is compared to a vine that should yield good grapes, but instead it is fruitless. Therefore, they are cut off by God and disciplined. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that Israel repeatedly fails to live up to their calling as God's people, and they are disciplined because of it. Now, the author here in Hebrews, the author is building on these Old Testament themes to say that now the penalty of apostasy is even worse than discipline. It is eternal punishment. Thus, the author's point seems clear. If a Christian were to lose their salvation or become apostate, then their damnation is sure. They cannot regain their salvation. Now, I'm going to assume that this teaching is going to make a few of you a bit uncomfortable because... This is a Southern Baptist church, and part of traditional Southern Baptist teaching is the doctrine known as the preservation of the saints, or the, sorry, the perseverance of the saints, um, or more commonly known as once saved, always saved. But don't worry, we'll get to that in just a minute. If you go ahead and give me the next slide. We're going to continue reading here in verse nine, or verses 9 and 10. It says, Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by, con- uh, by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. He says, uh, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. See, the author is talking about, uh, here, sorry, though the author is talking about apostate Christians, he says that he's pretty sure this group of first century Jewish Christians do not fall into that category. Their salvation is secure. See, he came out swinging. He was throwing big punches, but he doesn't really think they've lost their salvation. They are secure in God's grace. And that, this is because, uh, he can be sure of this, because God is not unjust. This means that for those who have been saved, justice has already been served. See, we've sinned, and our sin needs to be punished. But that punishment has already been served. Justice has already been served because Jesus took that punishment on the cross. He took our punishment on the cross. Those who have been saved by Jesus, uh, they have been, uh, justice has been served. And we are clear. Since God's justice is perfect, those who are saved don't need to worry about a, a double jeopardy type of situation where we are being punished even after atonement. But it goes further than that. The author says that God will not forget your work. This work is the evidence of salvation. The work, that, uh, sorry, the work does not save them, but instead it shows that they are saved. Those who are saved live a life that's characterized by repentance. It's characterized by God's love. It's characterized by forgiveness and God's mission. These works are the proof that one has been saved. The author says that I can be confident about your salvation because I see its effects on your life. But the author is not quite done yet. He's going to wrap this all up here in the next two verses. He says, Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise through faith and perseverance. He says that, Uh, They were to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. What he's saying is that these works that proved your salvation, keep doing those because they will continue to prove your salvation. See, we can all do some good things in our lives. Well, relatively good, right? See, people can act charitably outside of God's grace. Without salvation, people can love to an extent. Without regeneration, people will try to act godly. But eventually, we will fail because we're not God. The author is saying, uh, what, uh, the author is saying, Keep up the good works until you reach your end. Whether that's death and meeting Jesus in heaven or Jesus returning and meeting him in the sky. But continue to show your salvation through your works until then. Either until you meet Jesus in heaven or until Jesus returns. Continue to show those good works. These works not only show our salvation, But they also serve the purpose of preventing laziness. If you remember, last week's sermon was all about theological laziness. They've become too lazy to understand. So here, he ties this back to that text we covered last week, right? That group had become theologically lazy. They lacked the the, the understanding necessary for the author to continue his teaching, or at least without some pause. See, this laziness, it was a mental laziness, but that mental laziness is tied to their actions, The author is implying that the more that you do for God, the more that you will understand about God. We lack understanding about God because we lack mission for God. If we are not on mission, then we are not going to be growing in understanding. What he's also saying is that we should not hold off on doing good works because we lack that understanding. Rather, we continue in God's mission even though we don't understand and throughout the process, God will help us to understand. In doing so, Those believers will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. There's an important word here. Well, there's actually a few important words, but one that's really important that kind of sticks out in the context of the rest of this passage, and that's perseverance. See, persevering in good works or continuing to live out your faith is how we prove our faith. Persevering in good works is the proof of our persevering of faith. A faith that saves is a faith that produces good works. Therefore, a faith that is real, it will persevere, and so will the good works. It's through the perseverance of good works that we show the perseverance of our salvation. But if the good works do not persevere, then the salvation was probably false. So let's tie this back in with what was being said at the beginning of the sermon. If a Christian loses their faith, then they can never regain it. But those who are truly saved cannot lose their faith because they've already been atoned for by Jesus. Since God is just, he will not punish a second person for a sin that's already been punished. Therefore, prove your salvation through your continued good works. If those works do not continue, then there's a possibility that you're not saved. Not that you lost your salvation because that can't happen, but that you had a false sense of salvation to begin with. Therefore, in this text, the author is not detailing a doctrine of apostasy, rather he's encouraging his audience to continue in maturity or to shy away from immaturity, not to be theologically lazy, but to be active in God's mission, which will help us to understand God's word. So what application do we get from this text? Right, we always get our application from our definition of disciple, which is Matthew four nineteen, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And in that, we have three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that salvation is proved by godly works. Those who are saved live a life marked by godly behavior, godly passions, godly priorities, and godly works. It's not some short-lived, temporary, or even long-term temporary behavior change. Rather, it's a lifelong change because of a changed heart. I'm not saying that a Christian is going to live a perfect life and never sin, but the trajectory of our life should be one of sanctification. That's just growing closer, growing more like God, becoming more like Jesus. This is because of our surrender to Jesus and our growing relationship with him. And so our second application point is to be assured of your hope. If you are truly saved, then your salvation is secure. In John six thirty nine, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. This means that those who have been saved by Jesus will not be lost. However, if you find that your works are not proving your salvation, then you need to seriously and prayerfully consider if your salvation is real or if you have a false sense of salvation. If you find that maybe you do have that false sense of salvation, or maybe you never were saved to begin with, well then... It's simple. Call out to Jesus. He has paid the penalty for our sins. Remember, our sins must be punished because God is just. But Jesus has already paid for that punishment if we are willing to accept it. So place your faith in Him. Repent, turn away from those sins through that faith and allow Him to grow in your life. Surrender to Him and He will be your Savior. And our final application point, the do, is to persevere in good works. Live out your life. Live out your faith so that it is on display for all to see and obvious to anyone who passes by. The life of a Christian should be molded by their continual surrender to Jesus. So let those good works continue in your life as you grow in your maturity. So our three application points again is to know that salvation is proved by godly works, to be assured of your hope, and to persevere in good works. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you because of your word. Even when your word can be a little bit confusing sometimes, it's there for us to understand and to know you, to know you more and to grow closer to you. Lord, I pray this morning that each of us can examine our lives to see that fruit of repentance, to see the the evidence of our faith in our lives. God, I also pray that when we examine our lives, if that fruit is not evident, then we can seriously consider whether or not our faith in you is true. Father, if we find that our faith is not true, please uh, bring us to that point of surrender so that we can surrender to you and be saved and grow closer to you. Those of us who are saved, God, I pray that you will help us to live that mission every day, to glorify you, to worship you by making disciples. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to thank you again for tuning in to our sermon. Um, If God has had a message for you in this, go ahead and please leave a like. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.